Um, we adjusted the schedule, um, having been to many, many uh, summer conference weeks as a student and intern at Campus Minister. Um, yeah, you don't want this night to stretch out too long, so we're going to try to compact things a little bit tonight. We're going to start um, with uh, considering some of your questions that you texted to me, and then later on, a, a, a more of an abbreviated, more of a sort of encouragement exhortation to end our whole subject on um, heaven and glorification. <laughs> That's too much of a temptation. I'm going to put that down here. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for this week and ask that even uh, many are tired, many have um, stayed up very late talking, uh, tweeting, Instagramming, um, just hanging out with each other. Help us as we gather here around your word and consider uh, the whole issue of our, our hope we have, the hope to come. Amen. Uh, we're going to start with the questions and, and read. We're actually going to skip question two, if you don't mind, because I just realized that it's, it's so closely related to uh, another one that uh, we don't need to deal with specifically. Great questions, and um, uh, I've taken a representative of them. Some I, some just, um, I may uh, text some of you back that were a little off message than we're talking about tonight, but I, th I think I've got enough here that uh, represent most of your concerns. Question number one, how do we know we're going to heaven? Also, can you spot me 20 bucks? Yes, can't do that. Um, it's a great question, a very fundamental question, isn't it? Um, how do you know? And it's related to a whole other series of pastoral questions and the idea of how do we know that we are Christians is really what that question is asking. That if indeed, as we said the first night, the first night, remember that this is not an optional extra. Second night, what is the sort of the basis, the essence of heaven, then the applications of an individual in the church nights after that? Um, if it's not an optional extra, this question is basically asking, how do I know that I'm a Christian? And uh, it's, I think you can know that. I think you know that on the fact that of your, your, your very affirmation of faith that we believe is the truth. That sounds like circular reasoning. And if anyone accuses you of that, uh, there's a very simple response. I used to use it all the time on campus, as an intern still do. Um, ask anybody what they think about anything about the world. Believers, atheists, anything. What do you, what do you believe about the world? When they tell you what they believe, people are basically good. I don't believe in God. Anything. Ask them why they believe that. And, and then continue to ask them why they believe that. And what you will arrive at very quickly is, is that everyone bases their life on things that scientifically you can't prove or disprove. So we're all, we're all sort of we're all living by some kind of faith. That's not if you have faith. What kind of faith do you have? Faith in Jesus, we believe. His word is truth. We, we base our assurance on that profession of faith. The Bible also speaks of, of basing it on um, this inward conviction of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.15 talks about the Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I believe there is that subjective aspect of it where we, in ways we experience but can't even explain, we know that we are. But objectively, and the scriptures talk about the idea of, we talk about sanctification, that there is this idea that we are still in the fight. That the evidence of Christianity in our lives is, is that in some sense, there is an overall arch of our life that is still in the fight and still pursuing God. I'm not going to sort of give you a set standard of that because I think that would be wrong. But I will say this, 
and I say this all the time on campus, the fact that you ask that question, the fact that you wonder, do, I mean, ooh, am I, am I, I wonder about, can I know I'm going to heaven? The fact that you're, that, that question is on your mind, and it may even bother you, to me is evidence that you're in the fight, that you're in the battle. The worry comes when you don't care about it anymore. Do you understand that? The worry comes when this becomes completely indifferent. So when students would come to me about, I really worry about whether I'm still in the faith, in a, in a strange kind of way, the very question itself is an encouragement. So the objective aspect of your profession of faith, the belief that we have that this is the word of God, that Jesus is who he says he is, this subjective testimony of the Holy Spirit, and the direction of your life still in the fight. Question three, we're going to skip the three here. What happens to those who died before Jesus came, was crucified, and rose again from the dead? All right. Um, that is, all right, the people of the Old Testament, did, did the work of Jesus cover them? Can they hope for the same kind of um, heaven and glorification? Um, this one's a pretty, pretty straightforward one. You understand that from start to finish, the people of God were always saved by faith in Jesus. Always. Um, in the Old Testament, what they did is they looked forward to and had faith in the Christ of, of their expectation of prophecy as it was revealed to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it speaks of Moses and the people that he led were fed by a spiritual rock. And it says specifically, that rock was Christ. And so they were, they, Abraham would believed, we read, it was credited to him as righteousness. So it was a different kind of experience. It wasn't as full as we have in the work of Christ, but it was still faith in the work of Jesus. So they, they participate the same way that we do. Question four. And I got several variations of this question, and I've included two here. What do you think about people who claim to have seen heaven? Another one said this, and speaking of glorification, we have been talking about what heaven will be like for those who hope in Christ. In relation to these descriptions, how do we deal with a vast number of near-death experiences where people who have died temporarily have been resuscitated and claim to have entered the afterlife? But individual accounts of the place of heaven vary greatly and have been reported by both Christian and non-Christians. I think that second question actually deals with the first one as well. And it's a very popular subject. There's books and movies about people have gone to heaven and come back. And what, what do you think about that? Ooh, four or five years ago, I was a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. And near my home was a bookstore called Books A Million. And they got a coffee shop called Joe Muggs. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And, the, and that coffee shop was one of the places where I used to camp out. And uh, would meet people, would study, get on the internet there. And one day, I'm in, um, in this Books A Million in Homewood near Stanford University, and I'm, and I'm in the bookstore, and I could tell nearby they're setting up for a book signing. I don't know what it is, and I have a sign saying who it is, but you could tell they're moving tables around and they're putting chairs out. And then um, this about 13, 14-year-old kid sits near me and starts striking up a conversation. Interesting kid. We just talked about, he asked me if I live there. Very basic conversation. Turns out, he was that kid, um, heaven is real? That, heaven is real? It was that kid. 
He wasn't a kid anymore. He was like, got kind of an awkward adolescent phase by that point. And um, we, had, we just had, I had no idea. I had no idea I was talking to this kid, the one, the heaven is real kid. And I told my wife about it, and she goes, wow, I wish you'd known. Then you could have you really asked him, like, really? Seriously? Is this like a thing? Is this because he was there selling a book? We just, this, she had this healthy incredulity to it. I'm not going to go that far, but I will say this. Had he raised the subject and said to me, you know, I went to heaven and came back. What do you think about that? My response would have been, okay. I would have neither tried to prove or disprove what he experienced. Now, some disagree with that because there's aspects of that book with which are kind of in conflict with what the Bible says about heaven. But I would have done that because, you see, for the Christian we shouldn't get excited about the concept of heaven because some kid writes a book and says, oh, it's real. Or even accounts of these near-death experiences, which the second question rightly points out very greatly between Christian and non-Christian. It is not something we put our hope or trust in. It is the fact that the scriptures tell us. Jesus promises it to us. It's part of the package. The idea of the resurrection of Jesus points us to that resurrection hope. And so I don't put any, I just go, oh, that's kind of interesting. And I get a little concerned when, if we just get a little too more excited about the fact that these people claim they've been there have come back, then what has been revealed to us in the scriptures has been testified to us in the Bible in that way. The other aspect, too, is, is that um, the idea of what people experience near death, I think there's all kinds of... Um, Issues with the brain and brain chemistry. I mean, do you have strange dreams sometimes go like this? The brain does interesting things. I'm not a believer. My wife and I are different on this one. As far as what dreams are, there's a view that dreams are either like really significant or they're kind of brain flatulence. There's really a theory about that. I subscribe to the second. I think your brain is just sort of doing things and it's hitting and like it's doing weird things and things pop in your head. And so the idea that people claim to have experienced things near death is not at all, not at all in any way, shape, or form, any kind of assurance of the idea of what the Scriptures call heaven. We are convinced of it because of what the Scriptures tell us, what Jesus testifies to, and what the church has affirmed. Five. All right. The Bible speaks of rewards in heaven. Now, I won't give you the proof text here. If you read the New Testament, you'll see a section where Jesus talks about being rewarded about what they have done. Or this idea that you might get this, uh, those who persevere will have this crown of righteousness. This enduring crown will be given. And the question is, is a pretty reasonable one. Um, if we get rewarded in heaven for what we've done in this life, does that mean some people will be more rewarded than others? But if we are fully saved by grace, then how could some people live better lives on earth and then be more abundantly rewarded in heaven as compared to others? And that bothers some people. So is there going to be some kind of tier system in heaven? Will there be some people who, who, um, who get these crowns or reward according to what they've done and like there'll be this level up here? We'll go, oh, wow, that person, he's, he lived a much better life than I did. And uh, he's way up there. I think that's... 
a way of looking, a category that doesn't even apply, we won't even think about in glory. It, it, it's, 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 it's uh, yeah. Basically, the Lord doesn't reward us according to what we've done in comparison to others, but according to what we have done in response to his grace in the first place. And everything we do in this life, those who, who may achieve great things, Hebrews chapter 11 is called uh, the hall of what? Do you know the hall of faith? It's a, it's a description of all these people who've exercised faith and are all commended. If you read that chapter, one thing that strikes you is, is the fact that some people in there seem to have achieved a lot. Some of the, of the, the characters of the Old Testament, national leaders, prophets. And there's others who seemingly did things which were kind of like, all right, you did what you, 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 Rahab, she, um, she, she basically deceived the enemy to hide God's people. You have the story of Samson. You've got these people who were royalty, people who were poor, people who were harlots, people who were farmers. They some, some, seemingly they achieved some great things, some did fairly simple things. But they were all commended for what thing, one thing. That was their faith. And so if we get to heaven, and there's any sense in which there are things that are rewards or crowns, we always give those to the glory of God anyway. We'll cast them at his feet. I don't, I, I'm not even saying it's a, I just, that's a question which people are kind of divided on. But it's not even a thing that is going to apply that classification. Everything we do, faith is a gift. What we accomplish is by his, through his power and grace. So everything is to the glory of God. It is not a sense that we'll have any degree of, of classification or you're living in this house, I'm living in this smaller house. It will all be for the glory of God. In that sense, um, there will not be that tiered system. One that I actually didn't get on here is somebody asked me too, um, can you give us some practical help in being more heavenly minded? Did I get that on there? I didn't. Someone asked me, I didn't get it on the slide here, can you give us some practical help in being more heavenly minded? There's two ways to answer that question. One is the very basic but particular way. That any, any, the degree to which you grow in your faith, the degree to which you apprehend more of Jesus, is the degree to which you'll be more heavenly minded. But let me give you something more specific. Let's imagine there's two people. And they are both given the same task. That is to enter into a kitchen that is stocked with a certain amount of particular foods and supplies. They don't know what it is. And they're both told to make a dinner. One person goes in there and says, I am determined to make this very fancy dinner, this recipe that I saw on, this, on the website, this, this food website. It's going to be awesome. I want to make this particular really fancy special dinner. And he goes into the kitchen. He opens the pantry. And he realizes that, well, I haven't got the ingredients. I got a few of the ingredients, but others I don't. And some I'm completely missing. But he is absolutely convinced I have to make this fancy dinner. And so he tries to throw it together. He tries to make this, and he is nothing but frustrated. And the dinner is awful. It's terrible. And he is so upset, his entire world is right in front of his nose. The second person goes into that kitchen. He opens the pantry, and he realizes this is, this is what I've got. I've got 
these ingredients. I don't have this. So I know what I'll do. I'll make the best meal I can with the ingredients that I have. Gets out his phone, looks up at a recipe for what he's got. He makes a really, really fine meal. Everyone's happy. Where am I going with this? <laughs> Here we go. To be more heavenly-minded, let's do the inverse. One, one sure, lock-sure way to not be heavenly-minded is to go through your life thinking, my life has to look this way. I have these aspirations. I have to, I, my life needs to be in this kind of trajectory. These are the dreams that I have, and if I don't have these dreams, if, if I don't realize these dreams in this life, then life is awful, God has cheated me, and what's the point? But if you, <laughs> by the grace of God, open the pantry and you realize these are the ingredients. This is the way God has made me. These are the opportunities that he's given me. These are the gifts that I have. These are the gifts that I don't have. This is the era that I live in. These are the circumstances that dictate what I maybe can or can't do. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to, with what I've got, I'm going to make a life faithful to God and service to others that's based on what I have in the pantry. And when you do that, your life is not an inch in front of your nose. That is a lifelong conundrum and a kind of a Gordian knot. That is figuring out the way that God has made you, figuring out the gifts that you have. And even providentially, like you may lack, you may be able to do things, you just lack the opportunity. You may not have the talent. As a second grader, I wanted to play second base for the Phillies. It became really clear by fourth grade, and never was going to do that. I grew up in the 70s, so when I was a teenager, I wanted to play lead guitar in a heavy metal band. Uh, but it became really clear that I didn't, so I, I played bass instead, because those bass players do, one note at a time. Um, and so it, it's, it's, I think it, the, the broader question is this, figuring out who you are, how God made you. Pursuing excellence of the guy in the kitchen to the second person, pursuing excellence and faithfulness in the situations that you're in and excelling in that in a very particular way helps us to see that it avoids this irritation, this resentment, and the idea that we deserve more. Finally, question six. This is actually my favorite. You mentioned future glory and the suffering of Christians while on earth. But I, and I'm sure you do too, believe that Jesus came so that we can have life and have it to the fullest. I really think Christians have more satisfaction in life than non-Christians. I know this isn't the end goal, but it makes it doable. Seeking God produces joy, and this is the strength we need in this life. Can you talk about the perks a little? I'm assuming the perks in this life. Some of the ways you talk about Christianity are rather depressing, honestly. I love that question. Um, let me start. Let me answer this way. Every night, I get about twenty-five minutes with you. It may have seemed longer, but I've averaged about twenty-five minutes. And here is something: when you do what I do, that you have to realize. When you stand up here and you give a talk or a sermon, never forget this. When you say something, you can't say everything. 
Because if you try, you'll be so busy saying everything, you won't say anything at all. Okay? So in other words, I, just like the way that we see in the Bible, when Jesus was talking to the harassed and helpless, what did he say to them? Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. When he's talking to the Pharisees, the religious professionals who are tyrannizing the people, he said what? You brood of vipers. <laughs> okay? You whitewashed tombs. When the woman was caught in adultery and people wanted to stone her, he said to that crowd what? You who have no sin do what? Cast the first stone. And they left, and he turned to the woman, and he said, I don't condemn you either, but what's the last thing he said to her? Go now and sin no more. In other words, so I have to stand up here and say what I think most people need to hear. And if I was talking to a crowd of Christians, a group of students, if you lived in the Middle East, and you lived under the shadow of ISIS, and you lived under the shadow of being persecuted or killed for being a Christian, and your day-to-day existence of living for Christ was one of peril, where that mark was put outside. you remember that mark they put outside their door? It was on Facebook Live. ISIS would put this mark on Christians' doors, and, they, and that meant this, that this Christian family could either convert to Islam, pay a heavy tax, or die. Now, if I was talking to a group like that, I would not have to remind them that the Christian life can be very, very hard and very, very difficult. Wouldn't have to do that. But I'm talking to you, all right? And you're like me. You're like me. We live in a world where we need to be reminded of that. Now, it is quite possible, and the person who asked this question, I can't, there is likely in a crowd this size people here who have, do have such a difficult, horrible life, where I'm probably missing that. But for most of you, our problem is not, wow, we're always thinking about how hard it is to be a Christian. No, we're not. So um, I'm aiming, if you're on a boat and you're holding a tray of drinks and the boat is listing to one side like this, how do you hold the tray? You go like this. All right, so I'm, I'm saying something, so I agree with you. What you're hearing is not necessarily overall balanced. Do you get that? But I think it's what you need to hear. And so I, I will say to this person, say to any of you who think that I'm saying the Christian life is not one of peace and joy and happiness, I said it a few nights ago, but not enough, that it is. That our Christian experience ought to be characterized by thanksgiving and rejoicing, that, there, that we do have this peace that does pass all understanding. But what we need to come to grips with that we often forget in a world which stresses immediate gratification which stresses that the strongest and the prettiest and the boldest always succeed, is that no, 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 no. That in many respects, it is, as Jesus says, it is the weak, it is the meek, it is the, it is the afflicted, it is the unattractive. It is those who are scorned by society that gather in God's church. And so I'm not correcting this question, I'm just saying that it's not necessarily the perks I think we can understand. And finally, and this person's not saying this, another reason that we need to be careful is this, because we're often surrounded by a view of Christianity that tries to separate the benefits from the benefactor, that tries to say that we, we, we follow this, we do this because of the benefits themselves. And we said that the first night, Christianity is not true 
because it has benefits. It has benefits because it's true. All right. Here's how we're going to end tonight. We're ending this week. Um, give me 10 more minutes. Be 25. Night one. It's not an optional extra. Night two, what is the essence, what is the core of, of heaven? It's not the absence of suffering, it is the presence of God. Night three, it was about how it benefits, how it affects you personally. It makes you biblically confident. It helps you persevere, it gives you hope. Last night, how it affects the church. Remember that? It makes us a gracious people. It helps us to be people who are, uni who are unified, who are diverse in our unity, and also people who are involved in a relationship with Jesus. Tonight, briefly, we're going to end with this. Glorification and doubt. Which seems like a kind of weird way to end. But it's not. Because you see, the idea of heaven and life after this is in many ways the watershed of doubt and belief. It is often the crucible of belief and doubt. Because when you're alone and at night and you consider your life as a Christian, there are moments perhaps that you say to yourself, what if Christ has not been raised from the dead? What if there's no life beyond this one? What if we are alone in the universe and you are terrified? You, you fear, you're afraid. And what do you do with that? What do you do with doubts about, is this thing really true? How do we handle the idea that in a world where everything is in front of us, that we have this present reality but this future expectation. What do we do? Well, we'll begin by looking at Mark chapter 9, an occasion in the Gospels where a man comes to Jesus whose son is suffering greatly. And we read this. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He, Jesus, answered them, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Let's stop there. Now, I have some, some empathy, some this, the plight of this father. I, in, in experience, I, I kind of, I kind, I, I've been there. My middle child, first three years of his life, suffered greatly. He was, he was near death several times. He lived, he's doing fine. But for the first three years of his life, it was just a, almost a nightmare. And there are moments where my wife and I would be in his, by his hospital bed, seeing him suffer. He had a, he had a respiratory uh, situation. Um, and just gasping for breath. And I was desperate to relieve his suffering. Now, I transposed myself to this situation. 
If I'd asked Jesus for that, I said, Jesus, heal my son if you're able. And Jesus said to me, all things are possible to those who believe. I would have thought, this is the brass ring. Well, hallelujah. Amen, Jesus. Yes, yes, I believe. I'm full of belief. Now go ahead and do your healing thing with my son here. That's what I would have done. But this man has a lot more integrity. Verse 24, he says this. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. I would have said that. I probably would have just lied through my teeth. Yes, 100%. Amen. What we see here and elsewhere in the Bible that when it comes, we're going we're to expand this to heaven and glorification in a second, is that doubt is a normal part of Christian existence. It is a normal part of what it means to be a Christian. This is not meant, this is not written here for us to say, oh, what a jerk. This is, this is written for us to say, that's me. We believe yeah, I just think about heaven and glory. Yes, I believe that, but boy, there are moments when I'm just terrified. I'm terrified of death. I'm terrified this is not true. Those kinds of questions, that kind of doubt is a part of normal Christian existence. Doubt does not disqualify you from glorification or heaven. In verse 25, I don't have this as a slide, what happens immediately after this? Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear or speak, I command you to come out of this child. His, his flawed belief, Jesus responded to that. Doubt is a normal part of Christian existence, and doubt does not disqualify you from the kingdom of God. Number three, doubt is to be dealt with. He says, Help my unbelief. Help the fact that I doubt. I, um, I was, as a pastor, I inherited at one time a, a, a church situation. All church situations are imperfect. It's just, it's just kind of pick your poison. Where, where are their troubles? Where, where is their weaknesses? I inherited once where this Christian community that I was called a pastor, um, doubt became a proud virtue. It was really weird. Doubt became something they almost celebrated. Oh, you know, we just doubt. We're broken, you know. And, and doubt became what defined them. Doubt became the thing which, which they really almost reveled in. We don't really, you know, uh, maybe, maybe not. And in a very weird way, it was a deep dysfunction that we had to address. The idea that doubt is part of normal Christian existence for them meant this. The doubt is something I don't have to deal with. Do you see the difference? The big difference. Doubt, of course, is part of normal Christian existence, but we don't, um, we don't leave it alone. We say with this man, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What do we do? Um, I need to wind this up. I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, the, you've heard the phrase... Um, Doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. If you've heard that phrase, raise your hand. Oh, good, not many of you. All right, okay, this will be new to you. Um, uh, there, there's a well-known 
preacher in our denomination that people, they, they ascribe it to him. He actually got it from somebody else. I'm not sure he got it from. The idea here, the key to deal with your doubt, I believe, is doubting your doubts and believing your beliefs. What I mean is this. Think of the moments when you think, I'm not sure this is true. You know, Jesus, right from the dead, walking on water, you know, I, I just don't know. And we, and, we, and we put it under such great scrutiny. We think about, what about science? What about all these people that don't believe this? What about, we just, we just assail those beliefs sometimes. We put them under such searing scrutiny that it just, sometimes we think they collapse. Doubting your doubts means this. Put your doubts under the same kind of scrutiny you put your Christian belief. Does that make sense? Give, I mean, give the same way that you will sometimes question why you believe. Question why you doubt. Put that under the same kind of scrutiny. Why is it? What, what is it about my doubt here? What is it that it is, is, is causing me to do this? Is there really a reason why I shouldn't believe this? Is there some, am I, am I overlooking some actual evidence that I can look for that actually supports this? Are there actually smart people who do believe this? Because some well, all these smart people don't believe. Put your doubts under that same kind of scrutiny along with the normal means of grace, the normal ways by which we grow as Christians. But believe your beliefs, doubt your doubts. Doubt is a normal part of Christian experience. Doubt is not to squalify you, but in this life, our goal is to deal with those doubts, to believe more and more. It's, it's, um, 1 Corinthians 12 has a list of spiritual gifts. And one of those gifts is the gift of faith. My wife, she had to leave. She has an annual uh, girls weekend with her, her friends from Birmingham. She's back in Atlanta, so I could talk about her and not embarrass her here. Um, my wife has the gift of faith. She has an unswerving conviction about Christianity. She has a calm, just an, a solid rock belief in Jesus. She has a way of conveying that to others. In some kind of way, her, her benefit to the, to, the, to the body of Christ is, people have said to her, you know, sometimes you believe for me, people say to her. Her, her faith is so strong that when she's around people, it kind of inspires them. I don't want to shock you. I don't, I don't have the gift like she does. I don't. I, I, you know, I, I, that shouldn't shock you. Because it's, it's a gift, not everyone has that really just rock-solid conviction. In fact, I'll tell you this. If God grants me a death where I know that I'm dying, you don't always get to choose, obviously, but if, he, if, I, do, if I know that I'm dying and I'm able to prepare for my death, I know that I've got to gather, I've got these people in mind, actually. On my deathbed, I have particular people, I've told these people this, I'm going to invite you to my deathbed. And I want you around me, and I want you to tell me, Tom, it's true. It's okay. You, you can believe this. Because that, I know when it comes to that point, even though I just, I'm, a, I'm a minister of the gospel, I do believe. I have strong conviction. I've staked my life on it. But I'm still going to need people to remind me, yes, this is true. 
And likewise, you need people around you when you don't believe, not to believe for you, but to remind you, yes, this is true, to work with that inner conviction of the Holy Spirit, the objective truth of God, that in fact this is true. And I will end with this. Why, why do we doubt heaven? Why in particular is that hard to believe in? I think of um, in Luke chapter 24, um, after the resurrection, the disciples were gathered in a room, and they didn't know. They still thought Jesus was, was dead. He appears to his disciples. He says, peace be with you. And he appears to this, this, this group of men whose lives were shattered. They thought Jesus is dead. And now here is Jesus. He's alive. And you would think this is, this is, the, this is their, all their hopes have been realized. They should be ecstatic about this. But we read this. They said, but some refused to believe, but for joy and amazement. What, what, what is that? Verse 41, 2441, they refused to believe because of joy and amazement. What that means is this. It was too good to be true. What? <laughs> okay, no, wait. I'm not going to believe because this is but for joy and amazement. I, I dare not believe that something so wonderful is true. I dare not believe that Jesus is still alive. And so they doubted because the truth was, it seemed, too good to be true. And in a particular way, when we consider the whole issue of heaven and glorification, a place where every chapter is better than the one before, one that never ends, one is about the presence of God, one is, is life everlasting. Admit it. Part of you is thinking, well, that's just too good to be true. We refuse to believe, but for joy and amazement. So just, just, just embrace that. And we spend the rest, we spend this life recognizing that indeed this is true. He says, touch my hands, he says. See that it's real. And so the, the Christian life, Christian fellowship, the sacraments, the presence of preaching, the, the fellowship of God's people are always that Jesus says, touch me. The sacraments, the Lord's Supper is about, here it is, touch, taste and see. Eat and drink. The presence of the Holy Spirit among God's people experience this. Know that this is true. And we will spend the rest of this life being convinced this is not too good to be true. That indeed, the eye is not seen nor the ear heard, nor enter into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. I will leave you with this. Be convinced of this. If anyone asks you what we talked about this week, say this. Being fully convinced that the best is not behind us, but the best is yet to come. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this week. Thank you, Lord, for these uh, men and women who have done such a stellar job of, of listening uh, in spite of my being inarticulate who have been kind to each other as we have, as my wife and I have watched them on the beach, who have encouraged each other, who have sat through this week and sat under your word, 
and enjoyed each other's fellowship. Help us now as we end this week to know that we can truly believe that Christ has been raised from the dead, that what seems to us to be too good to be true is true. And that as we engage with your word, as we enjoy the fellowship of Christians, as we sit under the preaching of the word, as we partake of the sacraments, that it's Jesus saying to us, look, touch, see that I'm real. Help us as we travel home, give us safe travel. Thank you for the ministry of uh, the RUFs that are represented here, for the campus ministers and interns who, who work diligently and faithfully. And for these dear students, we pray in Jesus' name.